This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is Port Jefferson-based artist, Jennifer Hannaford. Originally from California, Jennifer Hannaford was a forensic scientist for 25 years and is now a contemporary artist based in New York. When my wife and I first learned about her in her Port Jefferson shop, we were just blown away by her underwater series. She has all these paintings of people swimming in water and just the way she brings out the colors of the bubbles and these are just joyful paintings. They're really cool. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to this conversation. So here is my interview with Jennifer Hannaford. So Jennifer Hannaford, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. I start out every conversation uh, by just asking a little bit about your story. What was your upbringing like? Where, Where are you from? Well, I'm from California. I was born and raised there. I grew up in Placerville. I was born there. I am a twin sister and I have two older sisters. Grew up doing a lot of swimming and hanging out on boats around water. So I went to college in Sacramento. I studied forensic science. Uh, It was one of only two programs in the United States at the time I graduated in 1994 and uh, went on from there. Awesome. So we're going to get back to that uh, growing up around water, because uh, I know a lot of your work is water inspired. So we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But I'm True. very curious about forensics. I know you worked for a number of years in forensics. And in what capacity did you work in that field? And what did you find to be the best and worst part of that field? Ooh, lot, a lot there. I worked in forensic science for 25 years. Hmm. I started out at the Oakland Police Department. I got into an area I thought I would hate. Everyone either started out in the drug unit or the fingerprint unit. And I got stuck, so I thought, in fingerprints. And in the fingerprint area of forensic science, it's the recovery of fingerprints from evidence. So, you know, when you touch something, you leave prints behind. Mm-hmm. And we did the comparison part of it too and testified in court. Ended up being my most favorite part of forensics that I worked in and did that for the remaining 25 years in different areas throughout the country. How many cases were, I guess, reemerged because DNA and fingerprints, you know, like sometimes people are in jail for a bit, right? And then sure. they get exonerated or whatever due to new evidence. So were you a part of that? A big part of it for the reason of, and if you look it up, there's a case called the Cowan's case. I haven't looked at it in a while. So some of my uh, information might be kind of off on it, but I believe it was in 1997. uh, Cowan's was arrested for a crime he didn't commit. Mm -hmm. And he was put in prison for a while. 
there was a police involved shooting with the officer's gun. Uh, the suspect was involved in the shooting and shot the officer twice, shot someone at someone in a second story window and fled. Hmm. And Cowens was subsequently arrested for the crime. The real suspect left behind a sweatshirt, a fingerprint on a jar, a mason jar that he drank out of in someone's home that he had kind of broken into to secrete himself, you know, hide. They identified that fingerprint later to Cowens based on eyewitness testimony. Wow. So the fingerprint helped put Cowens away for many years. He had talked about his innocence. Um, the Innocence Project of New England got involved. They fought to, to analyze the DNA that was left on the shirt and I believe on the mason jar. It did not match Cowens. Hmm. They reanalyzed the fingerprint. It did not match Cowens. It was an erroneous ID. So in this case, the person was put away on fingerprints, claimed their innocence, and the Innocence Project came in and proved their innocence, exonerated them based on DNA left behind. Okay? So because of that, the Boston Police Department's latent print unit was shut down. It was a sworn outfit. And I came in as the director later on. This is a long roundabout answer to your question about oh. forensics and, and coming into play uh, with different types of evidence later. But I came in to restart, kind of reconstruct the latent print unit um, to take it to accreditation with the team that we put in place there. They were operating not really without protocols, improper training. Police officers were moved from different areas of the department into a technical area. And this is where we're saying, gosh, sometimes law enforcement, they're expected to be experts at everything, right? Mm -hmm. And they can't be. And it, it's really, I feel really badly for the police officers, officers that were tasked to do that kind of work without the support and training they needed. But anyway, so Cowens was exonerated. My team and I came in to restart the unit and bring it up to the standards that are expected from the forensic community today. Did they ever catch the real guy? No, they did mm. not. And in fact, Cowens, after being released, won um, a settlement from the city and it ended up being the victim of a homicide a few years after he was released. It's, it's a really sad story, you know. Uh, is there any way to estimate how many people are behind bars that shouldn't be? Is there any, is there any study on that? Or I'm certain there is. That is kind of out of the area of my expertise. You know, the Innocence Project is probably the best information and knowledge about that. My area has been more in the analysis of real-time evidence. We have mm -hmm. looked at cold cases. Uh, we've looked at cases that are being reworked, but I really never worked the defense side of forensics. That's how one guy was exonerated. Have you guys solved cases that were previously unsolved? Like you found the bad guy versus uh, that yes. wasn't the good guy you have. Okay. Absolutely. We have. Yes. We've looked at cold cases that were closed for years. DNA and fingerprints both have improved and new technology that has allowed old evidence or evidence that hasn't been looked at to be run in systems that allow us to match, if you will, or 
provide candidates that were not looked at before. There's a database called the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. It's now sometimes called the Biometric System because there's other things besides fingerprints in there, like palm prints and other sources of friction ridge. Uh, it houses a database of what we would call known prints. Have you? I've been fingerprinted. I won't ask you if you will. People oh, yeah. get fingerprinted for a variety. <laughs> no, I, of I actually, uh, I actually applied to be a NYPD officer years ago, so right. they had to print me for that. And so did I. And so I was printed for that. And your fingerprints were then, and mine were, run against a system of known fingerprints. People that had been fingerprinted for many reasons. Some of them might have been for crimes. Some of them might have been for applications to become a teacher or work in different industries. Mm -hmm. So the ones that are accessible, we might run prints, what we would call the latent print or the unknown print. And I can explain this more in a minute against that known database. And we can come up with candidates. Now, the system doesn't tell you it's an identification. We actually need the expertise of a trained individual to do that. Mm. The, the, the analysis is such that it requires the expertise of a human eye to look at it. Mm. Do you want me to explain what a fingerprint really is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. So I'll explain to you what a fingerprint really is or what friction ridge skin is more accurately. On the palms of our hands, um, from our wrists up to our fingertips, and on our feet, the soles of our feet from the heel up to the very tips of our toes on the planter side, are uh, it's, it's specialized skin. It's corrugated, much like corduroy is. There's furrows and there's ridges. At the tops of the ridges are pores, which exude perspiration. We pick up other things like paint and dirt and oils. And just like a stamp pad, do you remember the old stamp pads where it might have a, a raised piece of, of rubber with a design on it or mm -hmm. an emblem that you dip in ink? We can transfer the information, the uh, perspiration or the materials on top of our hand onto a substrate and leave a recording of the fingerprint or friction ridge behind. That's what we're talking about when we talk about fingerprints or latent prints or evidence prints that we can recover from a scene. And we know for sure that everyone is unique. Can we say that with a good amount of assurance that everyone's prints are unique? We can say that with assurance because of all the fingerprints that we've looked at so far. I mean, it's based on empirical evidence. It's based on looking at many, many fingerprints over time. It's further supported on the databases that we now have that are constantly looking at and bringing up the most similar prints possible. Mm -hmm. And for instance, one, one way I can help you understand how unique prints are is the fact that I have an identical twin sister. Although, and I've looked at our fingerprints and I've looked at other identical twins' fingerprints. Although we might have some of the same pattern types on the same fingers, which may be genetic, genetically determined, the individual characteristics within them their unique and their spatial relationship. And those characteristics I'm talking about, the ridges I talked to you about that run along the skin, interesting things happen to them like uh, bifurcations and dots. It's those unique characteristics I'm talking about that are an arrangement that are unique to the individual as well. They're permanent. So you, they're formed in utero. 
that as we develop as uh, babies before we're born, and they stay with us unless we have scarring or some kind of permanent damage to the skin, all the way until death and decomposition. So th that's that's why they're important for identification purposes, permanence and uniqueness. So if your sister robs a bank, she can't pin it on you? No, she cannot <laughs> pin it on me. She might try. And this is interesting <laughs> because we've worked a few of these cases. We've had some sexual assault cases where DNA evidence has been recovered and for male twins. And they've tried to say, no, he did it. No, he did it. The DNA shows up. Does this make sense? The DNA shows up as being, it could be either twin because they share, they're monozygotic, they share the same genetic information. But there's other evidence at the scene. For example, the one I'm recalling is someone was eating out of a chip bag and drinking out of a soda can and the fingerprints were left behind. So although the DNA matched both people, the right twin was caught because their fingerprints were actually at the scene. Wow. So the fingerprints, I would say then is even more accurate than DNA because you have the uh, the problem with, I mean, not that I would say, I would think that's a rare case that you're dealing with twins, <laughs> but it's a, it's a rare case. You know, people have tried to kind of get in the same question about, wait, which is more important? I think that all have their special place in an analysis because maybe the DNA is unimportant or maybe a firearms bit of firearms evidence isn't important in a particular case, but suddenly the fingerprint is important because of the example I gave you just now. Uh, right. They all come into play at different times and for different reasons. Now, I know you did a series of paintings with fingerprints. Is that how you got into that? Was it from your forensic background that you wanted to start experimenting with fingerprints? Exactly. So I, I was so into art when I was young. I'll back up for a second. Mm -hmm. All I did was draw, especially portraits, up until the time I was in my 20s and I had started going to college. You know, we all get busy and life takes away some of our hobbies, maybe, or we don't participate with interests like we used to. Mm -hmm. In my 30s, I was sitting at my desk. I was working at the Vermont uh, Forensic Lab. And above my desk, I had a piece titled Phil by an artist I love by the name of Chuck Close. And it was comprised entirely out of fingerprints. Mm. And like I said, I was in my 30s and I hadn't done anything as far as art in, you know, like 15 years. So we were getting ready for a crime scene conference, forensic conference. And it was in Detroit, and it was the anniversary, 100-year anniversary of the World Fair when fingerprints were brought to the United States for use. And I looked up at that, and I said, I'm going to do fingerprint pieces, art, out of our fingerprint pioneers, using my own fingerprints, just like Chuck Close did. That started me on my path back towards art. Were you already retired at this point from forensics? Oh, no. No, you're still doing that. No. And I never retired from it, by the way. I never took a pension or anything like that. I was oh, really? moving around to different places. Yes. I just kind of eased my way out of it, if you will, <laughs> because I got bitten by the art bug and, and kind of wanted to leave. But that did start me off with it. So I did two of the pioneers that we have, Falds, Henry Falds, and 
uh, Sir Francis Galton, who is Charles Darwin's cousin and one of the people who was instrumental in discovering that we could connect people, uh, associate people with fingerprints left behind at scenes. So what's one of your most interesting cases that you've dealt with working in forensics? Well, this case never went to trial, but it had to do with a serial offender. Uh, We didn't know who it was at the time. And there was a robbery and attack in one of the hotels in Boston. And uh, the woman was murdered. And a week later, there was someone who was attacked as well. They both were, let's just say, call girls that had been found on, or professional masseuses that had been found on uh, Craigslist through someone. Mm. So we were kind of tipped into, wow, these are similar cases. The evidence was brought from both the hotel rooms from the different victims. The surviving victim from the week later, so we had the first victim who was killed at the hotel, and then another victim who was attacked but not killed. She informed the police that she had been zip-tied behind her back with zip ties and tape put across her face. This was similar to how the first victim was found. So the second victim who was still alive was able to tell us he took, the perpetrator took his gloves off and pressed the tape on my face. So we had taken these two cases separately to analysts processed them. We got tape, the tape piece, we got a fingerprint from it, from the second victim who was still alive. And we also got fingerprints from the zip ties from the first victim from the first hotel room who was killed. They came back to be the same person, which was incredible. So here we knew we had a serial case. Anyway, this case goes on and on. We spoke about something called the APHIS system, where you can put unknown prints into a system to search against known prints. We didn't come up with a name. Anyway, this case goes on and on, and I won't get into the deep details of it, but they finally start trying to figure out who this person is through the electronic trails made when this person is making contact with these women he wants to meet online. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. Here's what's really incredible. So I was working on my master's in the medical school. I wasn't in medical school, but the master's program was part of the med- in the medical school. At the same time, we were working this case. Finally, when we were able to figure out who this person was, the police tracked him down through those electronic files. We were also following this, the police department was following this person around trying to get items so that we could maybe compare prints. They're bringing back like bottles and, and grocery carts, never was able to, d- to identify him through all those prints we were trying to recover. But finally, when they got him in custody, they took his prints and we identified him. Back to the school part of it. Turned out he was a medical school, medical student in I believe his second year going to school in the same halls I was um, while we were trying to track this person down. So that was a really wild one. Did that totally like bring chills up your spine when you realize like you're in such close proximity potentially? You know, it always does because that's not the first time I've 
you know, worked on cases where it's like, wow, uh, that was my neighbor or that was, you know, right across the street. Uh, you know, I'm not just not saying crimes happening everywhere and look out for everyone you're sitting next to, but it was a little shocking. Yeah, it was. That's so, and crazy. an interesting case. I have to say my crew that I worked with in the Boston police department's latent print unit was, and still is incredible. The zip tie, um, that they got a print from, I swear was no wider than an inch and they got a perfect, beautiful print from it. They were able to compare and even being in forensics for 25 years, some of the things that we get evidence off of and tie things to is just, it blows my mind. Yeah, no, that's amazing. The technology that can actually uh, either catch bad guys or exonerate ones who uh, who weren't. That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool stuff. So talk about the difference then, you know, the the environment of forensics versus the creative process of painting. So one thing about forensics, I mean, of course, there's a creative process uh, to it when you're thinking about how are we going to approach this case? How are we going to try and recover evidence? What should our approach be? However, there's a really not so creative part about it in that we are a very protocol driven process and it has to be right because we need to be doing things the same way every time and treat evidence in a way that we can actually get it to trial and demonstrate that we've done things appropriately mm -hmm. in a way that's been really approved by our community. And so that sometimes felt a little bit like just as monotonous as could be when you're just constantly going by protocol to protocol. That was a little rough for me being that I'm a more creative type person. The pressure was high. Of course, always it was higher in different areas I worked than others. Boston was incredible. Vermont wasn't as high paced. I worked in Vermont for a while. Oakland, California, super high paced and, and kind of stressful. So it was different from area to area. And when I first started taking classes from Alyssa Monks, who she knew my background, and I was still in forensics at the time and really busy with it. And I think the type of work also shaped my personality and how I approached almost everything later. She walked up to me at one point and said, Hey, you can take it easy a little bit. And, and here's someone who really approached art with just total passion and dedication. So I'm not minimizing, you know, what artists put into it, but what she was trying to say to me was take it easy. You're not working on a homicide case in here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like get experimental about it. Don't get so precious about what you're doing. It doesn't have to be perfect. You can mess up on this and run over it in the street. But what she was trying to say to me is if you're getting so regular about your process, you're losing the really interesting part of what can happen with it. Because sometimes when you get make happy little accidents as Bob Ross would say, but really when you take a chance and maybe swipe something or do a new approach to it, or maybe sometimes it's an accident, something really interesting can come out of that. So that's how forensics was different. I wasn't, you know, getting a little wild while I was, you know, processing right. <laughs> some fingerprints off a 
gun and saying, hey, let's try this out. No, it was a little more regular than that. Right. Well, so much is at stake in forensics, right? Like exactly. People's lives are on literally on the line. <laughs> exactly. They're literally on the line. And the people that do this job are devoted to that exactness. And it's a big responsibility. So uh, I, I respect them for that. But at the same time, I craved something different. Awesome. So you said you always painted, but it took a back seat and when you when you got older and then so I drew reemerged. Yeah. You, okay. Yeah. Oh, you I you drew, drawing, but I not... never I didn't paint. I didn't start painting until I was in my 40s. Oh, wow. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. No, no, no. That that to me, that's kind of amazing because, uh, uh, you know, I my my grandfather was an artist, so he painted his whole life. So but, you know, he's painted from a much younger age. So the fact that you picked it up, I mean, you must have been just inclined to do it did, did you even take a class or you just kind of went for it so when i say i haven't painted i didn't do it as as a normal thing of mm -hmm. course in a couple classes i think i painted some acrylics in college for you know as a project but i never really did it i only drew and did charcoals and graphite so i took it up because i moved in with my boyfriend in new york city i moved from boston to new york city and I had always wanted to do oil paints. And there was a woman who lived by the name of Alyssa Monks, who's incredible. She's amazing. I asked her if she'd be willing to take me on for painting. And she took me in on the weekends with some of her other students. And I'd go paint for an hour or two on Saturdays, I think it was. And I mm. did that for about a year. So wow. that was when I was about 41 years old. That's awesome. I mean, I... I interviewed somebody else who reached out when she was like a teenager to a famous French composer and music teacher, Nadia Boulanger. And I just think it's amazing when people just take it upon themselves just to reach out to someone. Right. And sometimes right. It, a lot of times it just works out and it's as easy as that. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes when you have the willingness to throw as many darts at the board as you can, because you're passionate about it, sometimes one hits the center. Right. <laughs> and it makes it right. So I lucked yeah. out that she took me in and, um, I, you know, I did a little bit with her. I didn't paint for a while after that. I was finishing up my thesis. I had been going to Boston University, which, by the way, was the recovery of fingerprint about the recovery of fingerprints from the first layer of paintings, which is another way I learned a lot about painting and teaching myself how to paint. And uh, I didn't really get into it until about nine years ago as a thought of, wow, I want to do this for the rest of my life and really explore it more. Now, has anyone ever commissioned you for the fingerprint portraits? Yes. They have. Do they yes. still do that or? Yes. Actually, I have a really interesting one. I'm not going to say his name, but I was mm. just commissioned for and I haven't started it yet. A gentleman had bought a few pieces from me and was following me on social media. And I haven't shown the fingerprint portraits a lot, but I happened to put one up on Instagram. And he said, you have got to be kidding me. Uh, because most of the pieces I do are mug shots out of my <laughs> own fingerprints. Using ink we use when we record someone for fingerprint capturing purposes. He said, my dad was a gangster in Boston years ago, and he's got mugshots, and I, he's not here with me anymore. 
and I want to capture his piece. And we're, we're going to do a really special piece about the two of them. And so that, that I am being commissioned for, and I've done several others, but that one is cool to me because not only is it, you know, someone trying to remember his father in a special way, but it, it's tied to Boston as well, which is where I did forensics for quite a while. And it's just, it's really special to me. Uh, that's very cool. Now, when my wife and I first went into your shop, we didn't even know about the fingerprint stuff. We saw all of these water paintings. You take a lot of uh, sort of in motion portraits of people swimming and you're very big on water. So when did you first start getting into that? I know you said you grew up in California, a lot of water in your life. So right. when did you first start painting those things? So I started painting those in 2013, but the concept uh, I started with was in my 20s. I was teaching my niece how to swim and she was swimming at me and I thought, oh, someday I'm going I'm to capture that as a, a painted image. And of course, it wasn't until 20 years later that I even started doing it. But that's when it first hit me to think about doing that. And my niece, my one of my other nieces modeled for me and we were just kind of messing around and, and my uh, nephew was capturing photos of her underwater. He's a professional photographer and it just kind of took off after that. I got picked up by a gallery within the first year of doing them and I've just started painting them ever since. And it never gets old because the light and the movement is something I'm still teaching myself how to paint. So it's a great way to continue to learn and teach myself. Although of course I want to break away and do different things as well. Right. I mean, my, my grandfather used to say art is life and that's how he felt about it. You know, he made a living off of doing a lot of portraits in his younger years. Mm -hmm. And then he got into surrealism. So I understand what you're saying now as a professional artist, do you set goals at all? Like, do you do you have like a quota? Do you want to paint a certain amount of paintings each year? Have a number of commissions each year? Because you're not just an artist; you're also a businesswoman and an artist, and that's kind of a rare thing. You know, you always have. Uh, it's almost a stereotype that artists aren't good with business. It's like one or the other, but you <laughs> seem to you seem to kind of have a good balance of both. Well, I think I was lucky in that the last eight years or nine years, I actively pursued painting, not with goals in mind or a number of paintings I wanted to get done because I didn't know what that meant surviving in the art world. So I paid for my ability to continue learning in art and just kind of go with it while still operating on the forensic side. So for instance, I would fly down to Houston for almost two weeks and work and come home and paint. And I didn't know how long it took to finish a painting. I would just be done when I got done. So I don't have a concrete answer, answer for that, but that it's still evolving as we go. And for some reason, just when I think things are getting tough, another commission lands in my lap, you know? So all these stones keep landing in front of me when I don't know how they're gonna get there or why. They're landing enough in front of me every time. So I keep taking steps forward. Right. It's just a, a light onto your, your path that you're just taking one step at a time. Exactly. I'd like to sound like I was one of those business people who had it more together than that. But, <laughs> but I've, 
I worked really hard at it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It has not been easy. I kept my forensic, uh, private forensic business going in order to fund that side of it. Within the past two years, it's been such that I've been able to leave forensics for good. And it's the, the art is now making a living for me. And I have to say, it's better than when I was in forensics. And that part has really surprised me more than anything else. You know, I was directed as a young person by my parents. No, don't become an artist. Do something safe. It, in part, that led me to my forensic field. But gosh, if I knew what I knew now, doing what I am doing today and being able to do what I am doing, I think I would have chosen to go into art. Right. You know? Yeah. That's where your that's where your heart was at, right? Right, right. So now I remember you telling me a while back that you had a sister that once dated Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, was, she did. What was Thomas Kincaid like? What was his you know, personality like? Interesting. I never met. I met him. I don't remember it. I was seven. There's a picture of oh. us and she's getting ready to go to homecoming. I believe it was. Now I can tell you all I remember my sister saying was he, that he was talented, that he painted very differently back in the day, of course, before he became famous. And she really liked his style then. I think they only went out for seven months. So no big history there, <laughs> but it is really interesting because we're from Placerville. Uh, he went to rival high schools uh, mm. from my sister. And when I showed up in Port Jeff, which is where you saw my paintings and where I live now, I was driving through town. And of all things, there was a Thomas Kincaid store. And it was it's just really amazing to see how far his art has gone across the country and even the world uh and my sister dated him for seven months right <laughs> it's a cool story cool little anecdotal yeah. story to share yeah now what would you say to someone wanting to pursue a life of painting you said yourself that you know you would probably just go right into it if you could do it and you know i think a lot of parents they're just afraid for their kids. They want their kids to survive, sure. <laughs> you know, so, sure. so the art doesn't scream out uh, a good living from a parental point of view. So what would you uh, say to a young person that's passionate about art? What would you say to that person? Well, I think that it probably is fortunate that I got into art after working as in my career. I don't know how to say this politely, but uh, you know, sometimes you work alongside people and they collect a paycheck every day and it kind of doesn't matter if they bring 100% or finish what's on the list to do. When you're an artist and you're doing your own business and like a lot of self-employed people, you got to show up. You've got to show up. I, I have to say that it's a hard business and uh, it takes dedication and it also takes a belief in yourself. I I've been told that, you know, my art wasn't good enough to show anywhere before and, and it shut me down for six months. And, you know, I think you just need to be, I know it sounds simple, but you really need to believe in yourself, but certainly have a strong work ethic and a dedication to filling up an eight hour day with work when you don't feel like you want to do it because your paycheck relies on you actually getting it done. And it's unfortunate that 
an artist's voice has to rely on sometimes having money come in because sometimes they're picked up by gallery and the galleries and then their voice becomes what the gallery wants or what someone else wants. So do you think an entrepreneurial spirit can be taught for an artist, you know, because there's a lot of success that's kind of arbitrary, right? Like I, I always tell people I'm a writer, not just a podcaster, right? But success comes, you have to be really talented and there does have to be a bit of luck, <laughs> you know, like you have yeah. to have the work ethic, but you know, sometimes somebody will say your work is terrible while another person's putting it on the cover of something. So there is an arbitrariness to it that, like you said, you kind of have to have a tough skin to even get in the game because one person might think it's awful. Another person might think it's great and you have no idea what's going to happen. Exactly. Wow. That's such a good question. Without getting deep in the story, I had something exactly like that happen to me <laughs> where I was told that my first painting was not even worth showing in a gallery. And I got in another gallery and they entered it into a show and it was used as the face of that entire show. So yes, there's the luck part, but that particular instance of being told that I wasn't good enough kind of shut me down for a few months. And then being kind of recognized again, kind of put a new emphasis on things and turned me around to revitalize my kind of energy to go forward. However, uh, can it be taught? Hmm. I think it can be encouraged, but I think that, I think it's something that you have within you. I, I think that, I mean, I'm kind of a tough bird. I don't know if it was learned from many years in law enforcement, the thick skin part of it or the tenacity part of it. But I think there's several times I could have been shut down along the path of my art career and given up, and I didn't. Uh, my experiences taught it, taught the stick to itiveness to me, and I think something internal is in, in me as well. So I, I don't know how to answer that directly. Can it be taught? Hmm. Perhaps partly. I think, I think if you dissect everything, I, I think there's a little of all of it in everyone's path luck, grit, and a lot of different factors. You know, it's interesting. I, I've interviewed some, some very successful entrepreneurs and I asked the same question and one of them gave me almost the same answer that, it, that it's internal, you know, that it's something within you that you kind of either have or you don't. But, and he also said he, he attributes his success a lot to luck, just being in the right place at the right time. Right. But when I think of his story though, and what I think what separates the entrepreneur from other people is they're very good at making use of the opportunities before them where other people might not be. So I think that's what the entrepreneurial spirit is. It's seeing the opportunity and kind of ceasing it, you know, right. going all in for the one who's it's just sort of innate, like within yourself. It may seem like luck, but it's from an outsider, right? Looking in, I can see like these are people that like, see the opportunities perhaps in places other people don't. So well, I was going to say the exact same thing. I think that people that sometimes carve a groove out for themselves and keep going don't see opportunity the same way other people might. A gallery, a sale, you know, sometimes the window shutting or the door shutting in your face, I might see as an opportunity like, 
I'm going to take this a step further since that happened to me. This bad thing, I'm going to turn into another thing. And sometimes I think people with that kind of perspective who, who look at certain opportunities or failed opportunities as new opportunities seem to take it as a springboard to a place higher than maybe most might. So if there's anything people can learn, it's at least make the most of the opportunities presented to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even the closed doors. Even the closed doors. Flip them around. Yep. I had two more questions. This is just a fun question. I don't prepare any guests for it. Requires you to put your creative hat on. You definitely have a creative hat to put on, so you can, you can handle the question. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? This is so funny because my niece and I were talking about superpowers. <laughs> so it's great that you asked. And honestly, I think invisibility. <laughs> huh? Can you imagine the kind of opportunities you can find with invisibility? You can disappear because sometimes I'm kind of an introvert. Or you could put yourself in places to... Boy, would I love to go watch some of my fa uh, favorite painters without them even knowing... They were being watched and I was learning a million things about technique or I don't know. I think visibility would be pretty darn cool. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> now, last question. If someone wanted to follow you online, commission you for work, where can they go about doing that? It's my name. I'm at jenniferhannaford.com, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-H-A-N-N-A-F-O-R-D.com. And my contact information is on there. Awesome. So I'll make sure that is in the show notes. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast and sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So that was my interview with Jennifer Hannaford. All of her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash the story king all those links i just mentioned will be in the show notes one more thing if you're enjoying this podcast please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on itunes spotify anywhere you get your podcasts i'd greatly appreciate it thank you for listening to the story king podcast a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life please join us next time until then 